Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Hi, and welcome to Sorceress, a podcast where I chat with authors and audiobook narrators about books and especially audiobooks in the urban fantasy category. If you dig wisecracking wizards, conflicted lycanthropes, antagonistic undead, and all those other things that go bump in the night and then get bumped back, you're in the right place. So make yourself comfortable, salt the doors and the windowsills, and join me, James Anderson Foster, as we get to know the creators of this fascinating genre. This week's episode is really fun. Uh, This is an excerpt from Lucifer, Fire from Heaven, Book One, written by Ava Martell and co-narrated with me by talented narrator and good friend Cindy Kay. This one's hot, folks, and not just because it opens up in hell. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the first few chapters of Lucifer by Ava Martell. Chapter 1. Lucifer I am called many things. Prince of lies, lord of hell, the supreme tempter of mankind. Once, years beyond counting ago, I was the bringer of light, the morning star, his favorite. And now, I'm all those things and much, much more, but I stick with Lucifer. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The screamers always emphasize the first syllable, drawing the rest out in a shriek or a gurgle, depending on if I'm in the mood for quiet torment that day. The criers, they irritate me most of all. They choke the letters down like a child swallowing bitter medicine while they stare up at me with pleading eyes, hoping to be the one that incites the devil to mercy. The broken ones have silent, dead eyes, ignoring the torturers and demons that surround them. Sometimes I'll hear my name on their breath, a barely audible wheeze as they resign themselves to hell. I can hear the disgust. What did you expect, hearts and sunshine? I'm the devil. Or I was. On earth, I'm beginning to feel like I'm something else entirely, something new. Nothing has been new for a very long time. Every generation of humanity seems to think that they've reinvented it all, the most efficient ways to murder each other, the most depraved sexual acts. Please, after eons of violence and sex, I can assure humanity that everything is a remix. Everything has been done before. I do admit that The 21st century has perfected it to a fine art. The children are raised on video games that mimic violence flawlessly, racking up body counts that my top lieutenants would envy before they're old enough to drive. And then there's the internet. Every flavor of pornography, from the mundane to the type that can make the devil wince, is ripe for the viewing from the privacy of your own home. I wonder if my father is impressed with what his beloved creations have made of this world. 
I tempt, but I don't put ideas or desires into any mortal's head. All I've ever done is silence that little voice that says, shouldn't, can't, wrong. I just bring those visceral wants and needs you bury deep inside to the surface. I never handed humanity a rope. I just stood in the background and watched as you tied it into a noose and strangled the world. That's all in the past. Even your favorite pastime will grow tedious when you count time in millennia. The devil is bored. But that's not what leads me to contemplate ripping my way out of this dungeon of my own creation. Enrollment is down. Since the beginning of it all, a steady stream of souls has poured through hell, an unending tide of broken humanity flooding the pits with their wretched fate. As time passed and the millennium came and went, the numbers increased to a veritable tsunami of souls, ripe with sin and ready for the plucking. Until now. It would be easy to blame the sudden drought on the humans themselves, but the likelihood of the populace suddenly finding a religion other than the unholy trinity of sex, power, and money was slim at best. Now, I know exactly who is responsible for the sudden drought in hell. The archangels. I've always been a gambling man, but this hardly even counts as a wager. Michael is behind this. I gaze across the cold blackness of hell, my domain, my creation, everything I am and all I have left. And Michael is trying to rip it away from me. All things being said, the balance of souls that end up falling in my grasp and his most favored lambs that skip their way into heaven's embrace has always been just that, a balance. That balance was tipping in my favor until now. Calling human souls mere currency is insultingly inadequate. A soul isn't a thing that can be bought or sold. It can't be traded like livestock. In its purest form, a human soul is power. Souls aren't the fruit on the vine. They are the soul and the oxygen, the very sunlight that feeds the tree. Or they are, until they reach my realm. Damning that tide of souls might prevent them from crossing my threshold, but it certainly can't keep the wicked from expiring, and even the pleasure of spiting me wouldn't be enough to entice Michael to taint heaven with those souls. That leaves only one place. Barred from hell and unwanted in heaven, they are caught on earth. The havoc hasn't begun yet, but I can already feel it brewing on the surface. The souls of the damned will poison Earth as surely as chemical runoff, but Michael and his cohort will consider it a worthwhile sacrifice to weaken hell. I don't. That's where the stories always get it wrong. I punish evil. I don't create it. In my impulsive youth, I might have relished in watching pestilence and famine ride through villages, spreading disease and starvation with the ease of a tree-dropping pollen. Once, I carried my own bloody sword beside war and laughed as death trailed us on that infernal pale horse. Come and see, I would whisper, and they would follow me like beasts to the slaughter. But they were never innocents. I couldn't claim a truly pure soul if I wanted to, but... 
Why would I bother when untold millions were begging for a place in my kingdom? Seventy-two virgins aren't nearly as amusing as one painted whore. And where better to find amusement than among the throngs of humanity? A walk in the world would solve my little boredom issue quite nicely, and if I have the chance to tear Michael's wings off, well, that would just be a nice bonus to my vacation. Leaving hell isn't quite as simple as strolling out the exit door, even for me. It was made to be a cage to punish the wicked and the fallen, myself especially. When I fell from heaven, light surrounded me. I was the morning star, after all. The cold, pale glow of heaven grew brighter around me as I plummeted to earth, searing my skin and burning my wings black. It was my last memory of pain, at least my own, until now. Leaving hell is much more of a crawl. Serpentine tunnels wind through the depths, dug by demons and broken souls over the millennia. Only the highest ranking in hell know where they lead, and even fewer could find their way to the gates. The tunnels are the deepest of black. No torches light the way, no errant embers of brimstone illuminate the path. The darkness is thick. It oozes over my flesh like tar, swallowing the remnants of light filtering in from the tunnel's mouth. My shoulders brush the walls of the narrow pathway, and rough stone sticky with unknown moisture plucks at the feathers of my wings. The walls grow tighter, and the rough stone gives way to jagged shards that cut into a body that has been whole for millennia, and I know pain. Demons may have carved the tunnels themselves, but these last few feet before the gates were wrought by the divine. This is going to hurt. I push forward, every cell in my body rebelling against the long-forgotten touch of divinity, and the tunnel widens into a room with a single door appearing to rest against bare stone. The rough-hewn wood is unadorned. He never did have much of a flair for dramatics. The slightest bit of illumination escapes from the cracks around the edges, that tiny bit of light cutting through the blackness. I hesitate. The full force of what I'm about to do presses against me. For one brief moment, I consider turning back, but I've never exactly been one who considered the long-term outcomes of my choices. Fuck it, I think, and push open the door. I awake on a beach, sprawled on my back on the damp sand, the low tide waves lapping against my body soak my clothes, and I stare upward at the sky. Clear, achingly bright blue hiding the heaven I've forsaken. The doorway to the hell I've abandoned vanished when I stepped across the threshold. I'm here. Earth. I can feel the mass of humanity all around, buzzing in my ears like a swarm of insects are countless hidden thoughts and a million whispered sins. I sit up, slowly shaking off the last vestiges of pain as my tattered skin knits itself back together. I cast my eyes around my surroundings, pondering where precisely the portal had dumped me out. Not that it matters. I can cross continents in no time at all, the span of my wings tearing through the miles, but 
Never let it be said that the devil isn't curious. The beach is deserted. No mortals witness the sudden appearance of a winged man on a Tuesday morning. Almost as an afterthought, I will my wings away, tucking them into invisibility. If I want to lose myself in the surge of humankind, that was the first step. I take another, my toes sinking into the sand. A torn flyer sticks up from the sand near my feet, the half-buried neon green paper screaming up from the ground. I grab it, brushing the dust off the crumpled paper to find an ad for $2 hurricanes on Bourbon Street. New Orleans, then. My lips curl into a smile. This is going to be fun. Chapter Two Grace New Orleans. Every lost soul seems to end up here eventually. I'm no different. Someone with a better option generally isn't warming a bar stool at two o'clock on a Tuesday. I stare down the gleaming mahogany bar, remnants of a different age, before turning back to the swirling amber contents of my glass. I knock back the watery remnants of my whiskey, relishing the burn before signaling the bartender for another. Go to college, they said. You're nothing without a degree. You like to write? Be a journalist. That's a respected field. I snorted the thought. Maybe a decade ago, I would have waltzed out of grad school and into an internship. From there, a paid gig, and I'd be staring at my byline from those wrinkled pages for the rest of my career. Not anymore. More papers close up shop every day, and the magazines are following suit. Bloggers rule the news world now, and in the cutthroat realm of the internet, you're dead in the water unless you have an angle that brings in the clicks. Right now, my only angle is my desperate desire to pay the overdue student loan bill buried in the bottom of my purse. The bartender returns with a new glass, filled to the brim with the harsh well whiskey. It tastes like paint thinner that dreams of being whiskey when it grows up, but even that manages to be a splurge for me right now. I made it a double, the bartender says, setting the glass down in front of me. No charge. You look like you need it. A few years ago, I would have bristled at the assumption that I needed anything. But now I just smile gratefully and sip my drink, the smoky flavor letting me forget just for a while. I'm not another tourist or a person who moved here on a whim after too many Anne Rice novels. I grew up here, eating beignets with my parents as a child and coating my face with powdered sugar. Looks like we're getting some snow this year, Gracie. The terrible dad jokes rolled so easily off my father's tongue as he ruffled my blonde curls, brushing away the sugar that had landed there, while my mother sipped a cafe au lait and giggled at his antics. We were so happy then. I'd learned to drive on those narrow, twisting streets, weaving my dad's battered red Jeep down Magazine Street at 16, white-knuckling it at the endless stream of tourists and locals that seemed to ignore every traffic rule my parents had been drilling into my young mind. I hadn't been driving that day. 
I take another sip of whiskey, trying to dampen the memories that threaten to bubble up. The scent of scorched rubber and hot metal. The glint of the red and blue lights making the shards of glass littering the streets sparkle in the night. The sharp metallic taste of blood on my lips and the bracing scent of ozone in the air. Coming back here was a mistake. I loved this city with a fierce devotion usually only reserved for a soulmate or a beloved family member. I thought seven years was enough time to numb my loss to the point that I could start over in the only place I'd ever considered home. Turns out my major wasn't the only thing I was wrong about. After the accident, I was shipped off to my father's sister. Kind, but far from nurturing, Aunt Carolyn was a big-shot divorce lawyer in Boston. She and her husband had never wanted kids, so being thrust into the guardianship of an emotionally destroyed teenager was an adjustment for everyone. Understatement of the century there. Spending the first 16 years of my life in New Orleans, where the wild, vibrant energy of the city permeated your surroundings as inevitably as the humidity, didn't begin to prepare me for Boston. The narrow, confusing streets made to fit carriages rather than SUVs were familiar, but beyond that, I might as well have been on another planet. The sky was a uniform shade of dull gray when I touched down on the runway dragging my mother's worn leather suitcase behind me. I stepped out of the airport, barely hearing my aunt's words about school and sending for the rest of my things. I followed behind her, the dull thump of my boots on the damp asphalt filling my ears instead. I remember the cold most of all, in the rush to bring me to the safety of adult supervision and settle me into my new life, no one had considered that I didn't own anything warmer than a hoodie. October in Boston was a very different beast than back home, and I spent that first day quivering like a leaf until my aunt noticed and handed me a pile of Harvard sweatshirts to bury myself in until we could go shopping for something appropriate. I sigh, dropping my empty whiskey glass onto the bar with a faint clunk. The last thing I intended to do was spend my day dredging up old ghosts. But that's the thing with New Orleans. Ghosts are everywhere here. It doesn't matter if you believe in the supernatural or not. After a few weeks in this city, it crawls inside you. You never even notice the transition from comfortable skepticism until you find yourself popping into a voodoo shop to pick up a grigri bag before a first date and the cleansing you use your Florida water for has nothing to do with making your floor shine. My ghosts are nowhere more present than right at home. Aunt Carolyn had enough forethought to know that I'd end up back on the cracked doorstep of my parents' house one day. She managed to find a few student renters over the last seven years, charging exorbitant deposits and cheap rent to attract someone more likely to love the house than destroy it. The most recent was a nursing student at Tulane who had vacated the place for a job in Chicago after graduation. Suddenly, my home was mine again. It seemed as good a sign as any that it was a time to come back. 
unlocking the yellow door of that shotgun house after so many years. It still takes my breath away. I push the door shut behind me, closing out the noise and the bustle of uptown and walk into the silent house. The world seems so muffled in here. The house was always rented furnished, so the years barely changed it. The deep crimson of the living room that my mother had insisted on in a fit of gothic fancy when I was ten still makes the room a bit too dark. Standing like sentinels in each corner of the room are the four straight-backed company chairs, upholstered in cream velvet. I'd never once seen anyone sit on those uncomfortable chairs, but Mom had dragged them home from a shuddering antique shop one day. And there they had stayed. My old bedroom was relegated to a storage closet by most of the tenants. The pulpy horror novels I favored at that age still line the bookshelves, and the narrow twin bed is hidden under a bold green and blue tapestry I've never seen before. No doubt abandoned by another college senior who outgrew a freshman year hippie aesthetic. Across the hall, the door to the larger bedroom is shut, heavy oak keeping it locked in the past for just a few more minutes. I grasp the brass knob, the finish having long since been worn down to a dull gold, and turn it a bit harder than necessary. It's so bare. The queen-sized bed dominates the center of the room, and the massive mahogany wardrobe and dresser take up another wall. The various knickknacks and tangled mess of necklaces that cover that surface are still locked in storage with the rest of the personal items. After so much time, it's impossible, but I would swear on a stack of Bibles that I can still smell her perfume lingering in the air. Lush rose, with just the slightest hint of jasmine. A perfect mirror of when I left, I returned to New Orleans with only what I could stuff in my mother's old suitcase. Funny how even now I can't let myself claim any of it as mine. My mother's suitcase, my parents' house. Even when I look in the mirror, all I can see is the mix of the two of them that somehow created me. I've long since stopped talking about my loss to anyone. After seven years, everyone expects you to have moved on. Aunt Carolyn still gets a bit misty-eyed on Dad's birthday, but beyond that, she has her own life to live. Other than a sadly wistful smile when anyone mentions his name, she's fine. I lost touch with most of my New Orleans friends in the tumultuous first year in Boston. I don't blame any of them for it. After too many stilted phone conversations where I broke down in tears, railing at the unfairness of life and how much I hated Boston and the universe for stealing my parents and my aunt for daring to be alive, the calls stopped coming. Long emails turned into cursory messages about their lives, filled with bright snapshots of parades and festivals, and eventually those were traded in for Facebook updates. Likes and one-sentence comments were all I had left of my childhood friends. As for Boston, I'd been shoved into a tiny private school by my aunt's office halfway through my junior year. The children of the Boston elite hadn't known quite what to make of me, 
with my bright clothes and slow Louisiana drawl. Even locked in grief, my open Southern attitude didn't fit with the standoffish New Englanders. So any friendship slid over the surface of my life like an oil slick, never penetrating who I really was. Leaving had been an easy choice, but returning to New Orleans wasn't. Somehow I expected myself to fit back into my old life. I was supposed to unlock my front door and be welcomed back home, instantly falling into a job and friendships, maybe even a relationship. My life here should have just been on pause, waiting for me to come back and take up my rightful place again. Instead, the city moved on without me. I'm lucky enough that the house has long since been paid off, but my loans are coming due, and a paid-in-full mortgage doesn't cover utilities. My parents' modest life insurance policies were enough to buy me a car and cover my books and expenses at school, but beyond that, I was on my own now. With too much pride to call my aunt begging for money, I took the first job I could find, slinging shots at one of the many forgettable bars lining Bourbon Street. Inside the bar, I'm not a sad, lonely orphan hiding from her own memories anymore. Once I pull on the skimpy black tank top with spirits scrawled across my breasts, I can be someone else, someone who flirts with tourists, catching the gaze of overserved college students and luring them to buy yet another round of shots because everything tastes better out of a blinking plastic skull. The party never stops on Bourbon Street. And the moment I cross the threshold of that bar each night, I make those words my life philosophy. Inside the bar, my coworkers call me G. And being that girl is so much easier. For a few hours each night, I can forget about being Grace with her solitude and overdue bills. Even more, I can forget the shadow of Gracie, the girl frozen in time with her smile and her happy family. Compartmentalizing my life to that degree might be a few county lines over from healthy, but I'd spent too many years taking the advice of everyone in my life who considered themselves older and wiser. All that got me was a useless degree and a whole lot of sadness. Now my therapy is painting my lips hot pink and pasting a wide smile across them, while I pour glass after glass of sticky sweet booze for minimum wage and whatever extra dollars I can entice a spring breaker to shove inside the glitter-encrusted plastic skull we use as a tip jar. Maybe if I laugh loud enough and smile big enough, I can lose myself in the bright lights of the city and finally forget. Chapter 3. Lucifer So this is the world. Honestly, I expected more. New Orleans, the utter epicenter of debauchery and excess, a town that built a large chunk of its economy on binge drinking and public nudity. If I can't manage to find a diversion here, I'm out of luck. Noticing any effects my stolen souls might be having on the populace, though, that will be another matter entirely. A normal day in this city resembles a Roman orgy, so witnessing the outcome of Michael's plot won't be easy here. Lucifer, 
I stop. The shock at hearing my name on the lips of a human causing me to freeze in the crowded sidewalk. A mortal would have found himself jostled by irritated travelers intent on reaching the bottom of another glass as soon as possible. Instead, they flow around me like an oblivious school of fish, some instinctual lizard brain warning them away from getting too close. Except for this one. She is old, her white hair twists into a tight rope that coils around her head like a snake readying itself to strike. Deep wrinkles are etched into the coffee-colored skin of her face, and her clothing hangs in a riot of color around her. A small chalkboard sign with palm reading, $20, scrawled across it in thin spiderweb handwriting, dangles carelessly from one of her gnarled hands. Come to read my palm, then? She takes a step closer, and I smell the thick scent of incense wafting from her clothes with each step. I cock my head to the side, trying to figure out this creature's game. There have always been mortals who can sense the divine and the demonic, but these days they aren't usually quite so overt. The old woman stops and stands her ground when scarcely a foot separates us from each other. You aren't supposed to be here, she states her low voice scolding me like I am a naughty child. Really, I drawl. And why is that? You know why. I can see those black wings trailing behind you. They won't save you here. I throw my head back and laugh, the sound making the crowd around me falter in their steps for just a moment. Abruptly, my amusement ceases, what makes you think I'm the one who needs saving, I hiss. Of all the replies that I might expect, I don't anticipate her grasping my hand and yanking me closer. He's coming for her, and you aren't strong enough to stop him. He'll tear you apart one feather at a time if you get in his way, and you'll get in his way. She clutches my hand with an impossible strength that belies her small, frail body. Her dark eyes flash as they gaze into mine before releasing my hand and melting back into the crowd. I whirl around, my eyes scanning the street for her, but the old woman has disappeared into the sea of people, leaving me with nothing but her warning and the feeling of her papery flesh against my palm. Curiouser and curiouser. Who is she? The old woman intrigues me, but she is far from the first witch or medium I've ever run across in my centuries. Generally, those of her kind that end up on my doorstep are more interested in clamoring for a spot in Hell's court than offering up cryptic warnings. I chuckle softly, the idea that I could be in any danger amusing in its ludicrousness. Short of a pack of archangels or my father, nothing on this plane of existence can touch me. Michael and his cohorts are on Earth. There is no doubt about that anymore. Only an archangel or four will have the raw power needed to trap souls that want nothing more than to move on. And only the archangels are callous enough to rip apart his beloved world just to irritate me. Since the beginning, we all disdained the sweaty, greedy bunch that my father so adored. I was simply the one with big enough stones to mention my disgust in my father's presence. The others laughed at humanity, savoring the weakness and pain of the bald monkeys that played at having power, and grumbled at any mission that sent them down into the muck of the world. 
Short of raising the four horsemen and tearing a bloody swath across the Mississippi, they won't care what I do to this planet. As for dear old dad, he turned his back on us all long ago. Good or otherwise, he walked away and left us all to our own devices. The angels abandoned humanity, and in their absence, they turned to me and mine. And after a few thousand years, the bald monkeys grow on you. I duck into a bar, eager for a respite, however brief, from the crush of souls outside as I plot my next move. In a city where $200 will buy your own personal parade, a quiet moment to think becomes even more valuable. The cool darkness of the bar slips over me with comforting familiarity, blotting out the mid-afternoon hedonism outside the thick wooden door. I sink down into one of the worn leather bar stools and catch a glimpse of my face in the mirrored wall, seeing myself as they see me for the first time. I look weary. A casual observer will see nothing more than a tall man in a well-cut suit, a bit too dark to be practical in the Louisiana heat. If they draw a bit closer, they might find a different sort of heat burning in them, enticing them to take that last step and meet my eyes, letting every secret spill from their lips and their souls as their needy human flesh begs for just one touch. Never let it be said that the devil neglects aesthetics. To my own eyes, though, I can see the weight of the years upon me. Hell is so much more simple for the other fallen. The angels that follow me so eagerly crave nothing more than another leader they can follow with blind obedience. The humans that find their way to my realm for punishment are all too quick to shed their mortal coil and replace it with a demonic skin if it gives them the chance to become the torturer instead of the one strapped to the rack. There are always holdouts, free will after all. My father bestowed that gift on his humans, and even the most rank will try to resist the call of their true nature at first. But hell is, above all, repetition. The knowledge that at an end of each day they become whole and the cycle begins anew snaps them all eventually. They forget their lives and crimes. Even their very names fade into nothingness. That's how demons are born. Every demon slithering through hell or tormenting someone topside was just another person once upon a time. Bit by bit, hell scrapes away their free will along with their humanity. Why my father gave me free will, I expect I'll never know. No doubt it was just another ingredient my father threw into creation for his own divine amusement. The bartender leans against the back of the bar, watching me expectantly from her spot next to the gin selection. Whiskey, something smoky to remind me of home, and leave the bottle. At the order, she scrambles to grab a bottle from the top shelf, filling a rocks glass with two fingers of the amber liquid before backing off and leaving the dusty bottle beside me. I take a sip, letting the taste of burnt sugar and dark oak flow over my tongue, but... The taste I truly savor comes from the sins of the pretty red-haired bartender. Her fingers just brush mine as she hands me the glass, and almost unconsciously my mind ticks off the seven deadlies she breaks on the regular. Greed. Her quick fingers pocket whatever cash might not be missed from the register. Wrath. Shattering the headlights on an ex-boyfriend's car. Lust. 
So much lust, tugging up her tank top to flash those milky breasts after a few too many shots, dragging a handsy blonde man for a quickie in the supply room mid-shift, leering at a dark-haired stripper exiting the penthouse club, and the heat in her eyes as she stares at me. One word, one thought, and I could have her on her pretty pale knees in the middle of this bar. I certainly didn't come back to the world to live as a penitent, and lust always was such a fun sin. She licks her lips unconsciously as she watches me, every molecule of her body screaming for me to take her and ruin her for the touch of mortal men. It was just too easy. I turn my attention back to my drink, feeling a spark of anger from her at the dismissal, but the redhead is forgotten before I swallow my next sip. He's coming for her. The old witch's words bounce through my mind. He's coming for her, and you aren't strong enough to stop him. He'll tear you apart one feather at a time if you get in his way, and you'll get in his way. I know a prophecy when I hear it. The vague riddles of prophets have always done little more than irritate me. Who is she? And more importantly, why would I care about the fate of one human above the rest? Chapter 4 Grace Someone is following me. Just because New Orleans never sleeps doesn't mean every street is packed like Mardi Gras 24-7. In the small hours of the morning between when the drinkers stumble back to their hotels and the lucky bartenders and shot girls count their tips at home, the street's empty. Anyone still out has a reason. Mine was pure bad luck. Two of the three frozen daiquiri machines died mid-shift, forcing us to use the remaining one until it was practically smoking. As the new girl, I drew the short straw and ended up with the task of disassembling the sticky machines and scrubbing the congealed corn syrup and cheap rum out of every crevice. Such is the dream job of a shot girl. Last call doesn't really exist in the city, so the bars close up whenever people stop coming in. Tonight, the final group of inebriated bridesmaids wanders back out into the street at half past three. You sure you're all right to finish this on your own, Grace? I look up from my spot on the floor, surrounded by metal parts in various stages of gooey to see my coworker Talia staring at the mess, her brow furrowing as she mentally tries to reassemble the machines. She unties the turquoise bandana that protects her long braids from backsplash from the drink machines and hands of grabby tourists. I watch as she combs her fingers through the dark braids, untangling them and smoothing the few baby hairs that had escaped. She twists the simple gold band on her finger unconsciously, and I know that she's already mentally sliding into bed next to her husband to claim a few precious hours of sleep. We're just starting to blur that line between co-workers and friends. And no one wants to be friends with the needy girl who can't do her own damn work. I shake my head. Thanks, Talia, but it's fine. They'll be as good as new tomorrow. 
You have to get Sasha up for school in like five hours. Go home. Rolling her dark eyes, she groans. Don't remind me. Someone needs to open a school for the kids of bartenders and insomniacs that doesn't start until past noon. She shrugs into a gray hoodie and pauses at the door. Lock up behind me and be careful on your way home? Yes, Mama, I reply, heaving myself up to fasten the deadbolt behind her before returning to the mess on the floor. By the time the ancient machines are clean and whirring again, it's almost five, and the streets are utterly deserted. Pocketing the keys, I yank on the door to make sure the building is secure and try to ignore the prickling on the back of my neck, telling me that no matter how empty the streets might look, I'm not alone. Burying my hands in my pockets, I start walking. Parking is a nightmare around here, so I end most nights with a half-mile trek to my car. Usually the walk is a welcome time to wind down after a long shift, but usually I'm not acutely aware of the faint footsteps trailing a few blocks behind me. Probably just another bartender that got stuck late. Or a really late-night partier. Or you're about to get murdered, my traitorous brain helpfully adds. I quicken my pace, fighting the urge to look over my shoulder. The steps speed up as well. My hand closes around the pocket stun gun I brought my first day back in the city, the smooth plastic only slightly reassuring as the footsteps grow louder. I can see my car in the distance, parked under a burnt-out streetlight 50 yards away. Clenching my keys in my other hand, I run. The clattering of my feet on the uneven pavement and the sound of my own heartbeat blocks out the noise of my pursuer. But I know he's still back there. Frantically pressing the unlock button, I see the headlights blink, and I yank the door open, turning my head as the footsteps abruptly stop. Nothing. I'm alone on the street. I shake my head at myself. Relying on caffeine and adrenaline rather than sleep has me perpetually on edge. I scan the shuttered bars and darkened storefronts once more, before climbing inside my car and locking the door, the sharp scent of ozone filling my nose. Just in case. Morning comes far too early. Even as a child, I've always been a light sleeper. Creaks from the old walls settling, or wind that hopefully wouldn't roll into another hurricane smacking against the shutters, never fails to jerk me into awareness. Once my eyes open, that's it. No more sleep for today. New Orleans is a lot of things, but quiet definitely isn't one of them. I tossed and turned for the better part of an hour, hyper-aware of every noise and half-convinced that my mysterious pursuer was creeping up my porch steps. I finally drifted into a fitful doze close to dawn, filled with restless dreams of broken glass and black wings. The loud sound of an irritated driver laying on a car horn peels my eyes open far too soon. Rolling over, I squint at the old silver alarm clock ticking merrily on my bedside table. 10.14 a.m. Lovely.
Four hours of sleep is going to make my shift tonight an absolute delight. Groaning, I crawl out of the tangled mess of red sheets on my bed and pad to the bathroom. The creaks of the hundred-year-old floorboards comforting in their familiarity after last night. Turning the taps onto cold, the pipes moan loudly as the bracingly cold water pours into the white porcelain sink. Splashing the icy water on my face chases away the last dregs of sleep, but does little to erase the bone-deep exhaustion that has settled into me in the last few days. Last night might have been the first time I got scared enough to acknowledge it, but it wasn't the first time I've been followed. Getting stared at is nothing new at my job, but the gazes from frat boys that never look up from my chest doesn't feel like fingers digging into the back of my skull, demanding that I turn around. I've been ignoring those feelings for a week. Part of me doesn't want to risk meeting the eyes of whoever can make my throat tighten with fear from just a look. But a much larger part knows that letting my stalker think I'm cheerfully oblivious to his attention was a much safer bet. Easy enough to do in a crowd, but that cover is most definitely blown now. A soft meow comes from the kitchen, and I half sprint the short distance to the room, knowing what I'm going to see. I stand in the doorway, trying to will what's in front of my face to disappear. The window over my sink gapes open. I dropped my keys twice last night, my hands shaking too much to fit the key into the lock properly. And when I finally made it inside, I tore through the house, checking and rechecking every window and door to make absolutely sure the house was secure. I locked the kitchen window first and secured the inner shutter with the latch I rarely bothered to use. The humidity swelled the wood so much over the years that it's a nightmare to open. Opening that shutter is difficult and, above all, loud. And there's no way to do it from the outside. Someone was in here while I slept. The meow sounds again, and I absently bend down and pick up the orange tomcat that made his way into my kitchen. Gabriel is technically a stray, but I started buying him cans of tuna with my spare change the first day I caught him, sunning his furry ginger body on my stoop. He follows my every step whenever I'm at home, so I've accepted my new role of cat owner at this point. I sink down onto one of the kitchen chairs, my brain idly reminding me for the thousandth time that the red wooden chairs could use some cushions. My hand mechanically strokes Gabriel's velvet soft ears, but for once the low rumbles of his purrs do little to relax me. Sunlight and warmth pours into my kitchen from that open window, but I've never felt colder. Someone was in here. I have nowhere to go. No one I can turn to. And someone was in here. There's magic in the city, Gracie girl. And there's magic in women. A woman in New Orleans? There's nothing we can't do if we set our minds to it. My mother's words echo in my head as I stand in the street, 
staring at the bright yellow door and peeling black sign that above it simply reads voodoo in thick block letters. Carved deep into the yellow wood is a stylized heart with crosses and swirls radiating from the center. Growing up here, the rituals seep into you as unquestionably as the humidity peels the paint and warps the wood. I never gave the dishes of salt and herbs left on the doorstep or the chalk marks drawn under tables a second thought back then. And this is far from the first time I've ever set foot in a shop like this. I can see her, all messy golden hair and wide smiles, plucking the fresh herbs from the wild garden as she dug in our small backyard and hanging them in doorways to dry into brittle green bunches. She'd pull down the bundles and trek into a shop like this and wait silently until the last tourist filtered out of the dim room before ducking into the back room with her basket of herbs, leaving me mesmerized by the bright trinkets and jewelry lining the counters to lure in the tourists. Low voices and feminine laughter would filter from behind the curtains, and she would emerge a few minutes later, thick candles or red flannel pouches tucked in her hands. My mother always looked content and prepared when she left those rooms. Never afraid. Maybe that's why I'm finding myself in front of this store instead of at the police station. Some part of me knows that whoever is trailing me won't be concerned with a badge or a gun. I push open the door and step inside the shadowy building. Like every other occult shop in the city, the air hangs heavy with the thick scent of incense and herbs mixed with just a hint of smoke. Every spare inch of the shelves and counters are crammed with bottles and jars of various mixtures and hand-poured candles, as well as the cheaper, mass-produced variety papered with brightly colored images of saints. I know what you're here for. Startled, I turn quickly and see the woman standing behind me. The deep blue beaded curtains separating the main store from the back room, flowing around her like water. She takes another step into the room, her eyes raking my form, and I get the distinct feeling she recognizes me. Striking is the only word I can think of to adequately describe her. Taller than me by at least half a foot, with smooth, dark skin, seems almost luminous in the faint light of the store. Her black hair twists into a braid that wraps around her head, and a deep gold dress formed out of a cascade of ruffles swirls around her feet as she walks. She barely looks older than I do, but something in her eyes tells a different story. You don't believe quite yet, she says, her low voice drawing out each word as she takes my hand and leads me through that blue curtain. The beads cool as they slip over my shoulders. You will soon enough, Grace. How do you know my name? I stammer, breaking the trance. She chuckles, the soft sound almost musical. Of everything that's happened to you in the last few days, that's what gives you pause? I don't know what to believe anymore. Sit. She motions to the simple folding chair set up next to a small round table, 
draped in shades of red and gold and lit by two fat white candles. I sit on the edge of the chair, feeling like that same wide-eyed child following her mother into these shops and wondering what went on behind the curtains. I can't tell you everything I'd like to, child. There are rules with this sort of thing, you see. She flutters one of her hands dismissively, the gold rings on her slender fingers glinting in the candlelight. Not my rules by any stretch, but we all have our parts to play. You've been through so much already. She grasps my hand, flipping it over so that it rests palm up on the table, and she stares at my palm with laser focus. Almost as an afterthought, she adds, I knew your mother. I try to tug my hand away at her words, but her grip holds me like iron. When she looks up at my face, her dark eyes are sad. You're afraid. You should be. I know what haunts you. No part of me is surprised that she said what instead of who. One long bare nail traces a line down the center of my palm. I shiver. The world has many more layers than you imagine. Good isn't always good. And the blackest evil can be the only light that can cut through the shadows. The low cadence of her voice and the sweet, heady scent of the candle wax makes her words feel like a dream, and I can feel my eyes growing heavy. I blink the haze from them, forcing myself back to awareness. Why the riddles? I can't hide the flare of anger that sparks in me. A few days ago, the only thing I had to worry about was an overdue electric bill. And now, apparently, I'm being hunted by some supernatural creature. I came here for answers, but instead, I'm just getting more and more questions. The world was built on riddles and stories, Grace, she says, her tone growing far less languid and more clipped. You'll meet him soon enough. Every cell in your body will scream at you to run. Don't. He's the only thing that can protect you now that you're the last. The last? I echo, furrowing my brow as I try to make sense of her words. Who am I supposed to meet? She shakes her head, her expression as immovable as the braids wreathing her skull. Rising from the chair, she pulls a small red bag from the folds of her skirt and presses it into my hands. I grip the soft flannel. I don't need to tell you what to do with a mojo bag, do I? Her eyes glimmer with just a bit of amusement as she pulls me to my feet. Keep it close, and it will buy you a bit of time. It can't protect you forever, but that's where he comes in. You both might just save each other. She squeezes my hand before ushering me through the front door and back to the street. I find my tongue just before the door closes and ask, What's your name? She hesitates for a moment, and I almost expect her not to tell me. Erzuli, she replies, 
before shutting the door and flipping the sign in the window to read closed. Chapter 5. Lucifer Hell wants me back. I opened my eyes to stare at the sky-blue ceiling of the suite I'd procured at the Saint Hotel. The irony of the devil bedding down in the Archangel Michael suite was too much for my sense of whimsy to resist. Two curvaceous brunettes sprawl across the bed, tanned limbs and dark hair entangled across the pure white sheets. Well, not quite so pure anymore. I rise from the bed and stalk to the window, the plush blue carpet soft beneath my feet as I tug open the curtains and flood the room with bright midday sun. The city spreads out before me like a feast, but the never-ceasing buzz of human sins in my brain is drowned out by the snarls of demons howling for my return. Three sharp knocks on the door interrupt my musings. Odd, I don't remember ordering an interruption. I yank open the door, ready to unleash my full wrath upon the interloper. Instead, I find myself positively grinning at the familiar face standing on my threshold. Hello, Phoenix. Fancy meeting you here. I step aside, letting the slender blonde enter the suite. We do love our titles in hell, and Phoenix is a marquis with twenty legions of demons under his command. In the early days, he tore his way through the celestial battles, matching blow for blow with the cruelest of the fallen, but his heart was never truly in it. I don't need to touch him to learn his deepest desire. Phoenix wears it like a shroud everywhere he goes. He wants to go back. This hotel's a bit on the nose, isn't it? He drawls, settling himself on one of the long white couches, his eyes flick to the bed where one of the girls watches us with sleep-bleary eyes. They come with the room? Rolling my eyes, I turn to the girls. Out, I order. They scramble to obey, hastily pulling on last night's dresses and two high heels, albeit more than a little reluctantly. We can come back later, the taller of the two adds, her gaze moving from Phoenix to myself. I chuckle at her mental salivations. Now, Claire, your husband probably wouldn't appreciate it if you spent yet another night out getting Eiffel Towered instead of cooking him dinner. Adultery is such a petty little sin. Maybe invite Jamie here over one night instead. Men never seem too bothered by that brand of adultery, I add with a smirk. Her mouth hangs open for a moment with misplaced moral indignation before she grabs her friend's arm and bolts from the suite, slamming the door on her exit. She seemed nice. Phoenix makes himself comfortable, propping his feet up on the glass coffee table, the cream-colored alligator hide of his boots fitting in surprisingly well with the absurd opulence of the room. Sprawled across the white fabric, Phoenix makes a striking figure. He always looked a bit too angelic for hell, and that was never more apparent than now. A fallen angel in a white seersucker suit. Even for New Orleans, that might be a bit much. Why are you here? The bored pretty boy affectation drops immediately. Why are you here? He counters, rising to his feet in one smooth motion. Phoenix stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with me, 
Smaller than me in height and muscle mass, Phoenix has little chance of besting me even in a mortal fistfight. On the field of battle, I could obliterate him in an instant. The souls. I always liked Phoenix. Once the first angelic battles ended, he left the violence to the fallen that reveled in it, pouring himself into the subtler sins of vanity and lust, while the wrathful around him filled hell with torrents of blood and a misguided effort to curry my favor. The solemn look on Phoenix's face splits into a broad smile, and he slaps my arm. And I'm here to help you, brother. Ever curious, Phoenix leaves my side and prowls around the room, inspecting the random artifacts scattered across the suite for decoration before pausing at the window and staring unseeingly across the city. You're not the only one who needed a bit of shore leave, Lucifer. He sighs, and I hear a millennia of regret in that exhalation. Hope is a deception for someone like me. I'm not a fool, despite what the others think. I know heaven won't have me back. I always told myself that reigning in hell is worth the loss of heaven to me. The one commonality I had with Michael and his ilk was the refusal to be a servant to those that were lesser. But there are so many like Phoenix who long for nothing more complex than authority and approval and a place to fit in the divine scheme of existence. And for the first time, I feel the smallest pang of regret for drawing him into my web all those years ago. What's past is past, though, and I have Hell's future to consider. All right, I agree, and Phoenix's pensive expression melts into the familiar impish grin. No doubt Phoenix's mind is already thinking about which local flavors he wants to sample. Business before amusement, I say, snapping him back to the present. Michael's behind this. No one else has the power. He'll sense we're here soon enough. When he does, don't even try to get in the way, Phoenix. My fingers ache to hold my sword at the thought of finally facing down my smarmy ass of a brother after all these centuries. This time, I won't be the one slinking back to be locked away. This time... Michael is mine. Let's go. Chapter 6 Grace Something is off. To most, today would seem like just another day. Jazz music filters out of the bars that are already doing a brisk business, despite it being barely noon. The street hawkers aggressively peddle their wares to clueless out-of-towners. The sweet scent of frying beignets wafts through the air, carried on thick humidity. Even a day ago, I would have ignored the cold knot of dread in my stomach that screamed, wrong. But those few minutes inside Erzuli's shop ripped the veil from my eyes. I can see, but even more importantly, I can feel. A young couple tries to push past a man selling t-shirts on the sidewalk. From one second to the next, his jovial grin curls into a snarl, and he grabs the man's arm, shoving him back into the display and collapsing the flimsy card table, piles of cheap purple cotton falling on the ground around him. I stop, almost trembling at the pure rage I feel coming from the man, 
The ever-present police that wander Bourbon Street are absent, and I watch helplessly as he curls his fingers around the smaller man's neck and drags him up, oblivious to the shrieks of his victim's girlfriend. He glances over his shoulder and sees me. His eyes are pure black. Like an afterthought, he drops his intended victim like a rag doll and stalks toward me. His head cocks to the side like a curious animal. I take a step back, the confidence from the little red mojo bag stuffed in my purse draining away as I stare into those dead black eyes. Every instinct tells me to run, but my feet stay riveted to the spot as that thing, dressed up as a man, inches closer. Now, now, it's a bit early for senseless violence, isn't it? The creature immediately stops its advance at the bored-sounding voice, the black eyes focusing on the figure behind me. I turn to see two men watching the scene play out. They're a study in contrast standing next to each other. The smaller of the two men leans against a lamppost, watching the whole terrifying scenario with pale blue eyes that seem to glint in amusement at it all. He looks like one of the golden boys of Tulane, much more likely to spend his days lazing in one of the French Quarter mansions rather than dirtying himself on bourbon in his immaculate white suit. Cherubic, my mind absently supplies the word, but despite his flawless good looks, my eyes are drawn to his companion. Oh. He wears a black suit that hugs his muscular frame like a second skin, and he moves with the gait of a predator as he steps around me. Just a hint of stubble darkens the tanned skin of his chiseled jaw, and my eyes unwillingly follow the contours of his face, tracing razor-sharp cheekbones up to the eyes dark enough to swallow the light. He touches my arm as he crosses in front of me, blocking the assailant that I genuinely forgot about. Maybe later, sweetheart, he says idly. When his fingers brush my arm, he falters in his step, his attention snapping from the black-eyed man to me in an instant. How? he asks, his fingers tightening around my wrist as he stares into my eyes as if searching for something. Planning on taking care of that anytime soon, brother? Annoyance flashes across his features as the blonde's comment pulls us both back to reality. He lingers just a moment longer, his fingers warm against my pulse before letting me go and turning back to our little problem. You're one of mine, he growls, stalking towards a creature who stands perfectly still, its black eyes watching him almost expectantly. A nasty one, too. All that rage just boiling over with no real form anymore. And you're just the start, he mutters to himself. You know where you belong. I have better things to do than collect each one of you, he spits, closing the last foot between them and pressing his palm against its forehead. The blackness drains out of its eyes, leaving a perfectly normal shade of brown in its wake, and the man slumps to the ground looking dazed. 
you're one of mine. His words repeat in my head. He's the one who turned a perfectly normal person into a monster in the space of an eye blink. I take a step backward, willing his focus to stay off me for just another moment as I slip through the crowd that grew around us. Thankful for the love of any spectacle that constantly permeates New Orleans, I push my way through the gawkers and duck into an alleyway. I follow the winding back streets, walking as fast as I dare. Don't run. If you run, that gives them a reason to chase you. I put a half dozen blocks between myself and the scene before I allow myself to stop. I lean against the wall, the cool dampness of the stone soaking through my dress as I try and fail to make myself stop shaking. Power. It poured off him in waves. He stopped that creature like it was nothing, ripping out whatever had infected that man with the ease of pulling out a splinter. And you're just the start. Chapter 7 Lucifer Where did she go? The crowd disperses slowly around us, the curious onlookers searching for their amusement elsewhere as soon as it becomes apparent that the scene has ended. Phoenix arches an eyebrow at my question. That little blonde? She ran off. He nudges the unconscious lump of a man crumpled on the ground with the toe of his boot. So this is what we have to look forward to then? I nod. Physically, he'll be fine, but mentally is another story. Possession always leaves scars on the host, but at least demons know how to worm their way into a victim slowly. These trapped souls have all the finesse of a jackhammer. Those scant few minutes trapped inside his own head with that soul will leave him with a case of PTSD that will haunt him for the rest of his days. And there will be others. I scan the crowd, searching every face for the telltale blackness that covers the infected like a haze and see nothing. It's just beginning, but I can't be everywhere at once. I spare one last glance for the man on the ground. Greed, shortchanging a few tourists. Lust, telling the wife he was working late while sneaking off for a lap dance. Envy, laughing when his neighbor's shiny little convertible was stolen. Before today, his sins were all small time, barely a blip on the celestial radar. His halo might not have been the brightest, but he certainly wasn't one of mine yet. But I can already see the changes in him. Humans have tried to describe the soul for as long as they've had language, but Pulp Fiction came the closest to getting it right. Every angel, fallen or otherwise, can see into a mortal soul with just a touch, but none with the clarity that I can. Sins, memories, their most naked desires, they're all laid bare before me. I am the light bringer, and those souls are brighter than the sun until evil creeps into them and slowly blackens that purity. Veins of blackness are already twisting through that unfortunate mortal soul, far darker than his petty sins would have caused. It will only spread more as time passes, infecting him with the violence and cruelty of that broken spirit that wore him like a cheap suit. Michael just damned another human to my realm. I hope it was worth it, I mutter bitterly before turning back to Phoenix. 
It's going to get worse, exponentially worse. Phoenix stands stiffly next to me, his perpetual humor finally silenced as the soldier in him waits for orders. Find Michael. Silence. Nothingness. Just pure white light. I thought nothing of the diminutive blonde frozen in terror at the sight of my lovely possessed friend until my fingers closed around her arm. I expected to hear the same sins I hear from every privileged American college girl. Binge drinking, cheating on exams, maybe an illicit affair with a married professor. I expected her to be nothing more than a pretty diversion to while away my downtime as I searched for Michael. I didn't expect this. This is something new. I have to find her. With Phoenix scouring the city for any sign of Michael, I can afford to indulge my curiosity. If I run across a few more errant souls in my search, even better. This part of New Orleans is a maze of narrow side streets and wider thoroughfares, all choked with humans eager to glut themselves on everything the city offers. I weave my way through the crowd, a shark among minnows, my mind idly ticking off petty crimes. Sloth, a young man with bloodshot eyes lazing away his twenties in a cloud of marijuana smoke. Wrath, a clean-cut preacher with a broad smile who beats his wife every night. Pride, a trophy wife sneering at a panhandler. Cataloging humanity's failings is as unconscious for me as breathing, but... Unless I run across something particularly nasty, they barely register on their own. The preacher will end up as one of mine someday. Cruelty and hypocrisy always come to the same end. I can feel her. She's close. I follow my instincts, oblivious to humans jostling each other around me, their forgotten sins not even registering in my thoughts anymore as the beacon draws me closer. I end up outside yet another bar, one of those terminally hip locations where this decade's version of yuppies go to preen and pound back $16 cocktails. She sits perched on a stool at the end of the bar, her head in her hands, a mass of golden curls obscuring her face. Her purse is flung carelessly on the stool next to her, an obvious ploy to prevent the middle management Lotharios prowling the room from sitting next to her. The simple leather tote hangs open, and I see a small red flannel bag poking out the top. Of course, voodoo, when in New Orleans, after all. I sit down on the next stool, and a shiver goes through her small frame as I draw closer. Perceptive, this one. Slowly, she lifts her head, resignation written across her pretty face. You found me, she says dully. You wanted me to. I reach into her bag and snatch the little flannel patch out, tearing the hastily stitched closure open. Don't, she protests. I need that. I pause, curiosity getting the better of me. She obviously has no idea what's inside this bag. It's supposed to protect me. From you. I chuckle as I pour out the bag's contents. Just as I thought. Instead of the usual jumble of herbs and stones, only a heavy iron coin falls into my palm. I turn it over, my thumb tracing the sharp angles of the sigil carved into both sides. What is that? She asks, barely a quaver in her voice this time. 
The proximity of so many others lessens her fear bit by bit, and she reaches across the empty seat and plucks the coin from my hand. She narrows her eyes as she examines the symbol. What does this symbol mean? It's my sigil. If this girl is a witch or a medium, she's certainly not very good at it. And who are you? Lucifer, I reply, smirking inwardly as her eyes widen at my utterance of the word that froze the blood of untold amounts of mortals. Wow, she murmurs. Despite the oddness of our initial meeting, I prepare myself for the usual onslaught of fear tempered with just the perfect amount of lust. Instead, laughter bubbles out of those lacquered pink lips, and her deep gray eyes hold a note of desperate amusement. She doesn't believe me. Your parents never even gave you a chance, did they? You're right about that. I reply dryly, signaling the bartender for a drink. An instant later, a heavy tumbler of top-shelf whiskey appears in front of me. Bit by bit, the smile fades from her face as her mind no doubt ticks off every observation in the brief minutes she's spent in my presence. You're serious. As a heart attack. I turn in my seat, leaning back against the edge of the bar and survey the room as I sip my whiskey, Fight or flight wars with each other inside this inquisitive girl. She isn't making a move to run just yet, so I soldier on. You seem to have me at a disadvantage. You know who I am, but I find myself at a loss to figuring out who you are, and I don't much care for not knowing. I'm Grace. Of course you are. Dropping my glass on the bar with a heavy clunk, I grab her arm without looking at her, catching her with the speed of a striking snake. Nothing. I press deeper into her mind, searching for the walls that the more powerful out there might put up to block my presence. Those walls always have cracks that I can tear through with enough pressure. But there is nothing. No walls, no hidden doors, just pure white light that I haven't seen since... Heaven. What are you? I hiss. She jerks her arm out of my grip and I let her. I'm not anyone, she snaps. I very much doubt that. You couldn't keep me out if you were no one. At her searching look, I scanned the room, settling on a tall man in an off-the-rack suit, flirting heavily with a busty blonde in a yellow dress painted onto her generous curves. Without contact, I won't get quite the same technicolor detail of their lives, but it's close enough to paint my new friend an acceptable picture of my abilities. See those two over in the corner table? Grace casually looks over her shoulder, her nose wrinkling at the sight of the man. You know him? She shakes her head. I know the type. Entitled, thinks he can buy whatever he wants, including her. Well, he's correct there. She's an escort. She'd do well to avoid him, though. He's cheap. He'll find a way to weasel out of paying her, even if he has to rob her after the transaction is completed. The girl tosses her head back, fake laughter ringing across the bar as she squeezes her companion's arm. Theft isn't very high on the list of sins, but you're right about the entitlement. The world owes him as far as he's concerned, and soon enough he might get the balls to take what he thinks he deserves. It won't end pretty for whichever girl he sets his sights on then. 
It'll be one of mine. Grace falls silent next to me, her fingers tearing the bar napkin into damp confetti. So you can read people's souls just by looking at them? Physical contact gets me more detail, but I can see the gist from here. I can see the implications of my words swirling in her head. Abruptly, she asks, why are you telling me this? Something about this young and very human-seeming girl makes me want to eschew the usual deceptions. I actually find myself wanting to be honest with her. Because you're something new. When I touched your arm earlier, I saw nothing. No past, no future, just white. I reach up and push an errant curl behind her ear, letting my fingertips brush her cheek just to reassure myself for the third time of the truth. So does that mean I don't have a soul? She blurts out, her brow creasing as she ponders the implications of lacking something she likely didn't believe in a few hours ago. I very much doubt that as well. You have divine blood somewhere in your line, Powerful enough that thousands of years of dilution with mortals hasn't erased it. I pause, studying her face with an intensity that clearly makes her uncomfortable. The flush in her cheeks has very little to do with the heat outside or her frantic attempt to escape me. I follow that heated skin to the hollow of her collarbone and lower to where it disappears under the brighter red of her sundress. I smirk as I ponder just how far down I'm making her blush. I wonder, I murmur, thinking out loud as Grace squirms under my scrutiny. I'd almost think you were an offshoot of one of my brothers, but you don't have the touch of madness about you. Nephilim never last for much time in the world, a bit too crazy to keep a low enough profile to survive. She stays surprisingly calm through my narrative, and for the first time, I find myself wanting to know what is swirling inside a human's brain. Definitely not a Nephilim. Even if you managed to be the first in history that wasn't entirely batshit, you still would have been hunted down already, especially with archangels skulking around the city. Her entire body goes still at the word hunted, so then I'm not the only person intrigued by this little blonde. Someone is hunting me, or something. Her slender fingers still toy with the iron coin, nervously tracing and retracing the sigil carved into it. I wonder if any part of her notices the shiver of power that comes from her fingertips each time she draws my symbol. She continues on, oblivious to the slowly warming coin in her hand. When I saw you in the square, I thought it was you. But I think you're someone else. She tries futilely to signal the bartender, the rocks glass at her elbow holding nothing more than watery dregs, her voice lost in the crowd of alcohol seekers. Sighing, I push my nearly full glass towards her. This one needs some liquid courage. She smiles gratefully and takes a delicate sip of the smoky bourbon, her eyes fluttering shut for just a moment as she savors the drink. I think we were supposed to meet. Someone made sure that I would find you, or that you would find me. She told me the blackest evil can be the only light that can cut through the shadows. Grace laughs, a bitterness in her tone that sounds wrong on someone so young. What damage has heaven already done to her? 
Somehow I didn't expect the devil to be the one who's supposed to protect me. She certainly left that part out. My suspicions grow as she describes the riddles she's been fed about our foretold meeting. I think we might have a mutual acquaintance, I say, stealing my drink back from her hand for a long sip as I recall those ageless eyes and the words she hissed at me in the middle of the street. I fucking hate prophecies. He's coming for her, and you aren't strong enough to stop him. He'll tear you apart one feather at a time if you get in his way, and you'll get in his way, I parrot. I thought the old woman was just another charlatan fortune teller at first, but she knew who I was, and I think she knows you as well. The color drains from her skin at my words, replacing that enticing blush with an unhealthy pallor. I press the drink back into her palm, my fingers steadying her trembling hand as she grips the glass. She wasn't old, Grace replies, fighting to keep her voice even. She barely looked thirty, but she said she knew my mother. Unsurprising, someone playing with these kinds of forces wasn't just another witch. Did she tell you her name? I never got the pleasure. Grace hesitates, and that momentary distrust makes me respect her just a bit more. Divine blood or not, she is a young, breakable mortal. Her very life is being toyed with by forces that vastly overpower her, but she still isn't about to hitch herself to the first potential protector that might come along. She said her name was Urzuli. I snort. I don't know what else I expected in New Orleans. She's a loa. The spirit of beauty, luxury, and love, and the protector of women and children, if I recall. I notice that my hand is still covering Grace's, even though hers has long since stopped shaking. I jerk my hand back abruptly. I'm not surprised she's irritated at the archangels stomping around her territory, I add. I still don't know what all this has to do with me. The fear drains out of her, replaced with a weariness that I recognize all too well. She picks up the coin from the bar again, turning it over in her hand as though the sharp angles of my symbol hold the answers she needs. I'm no one. I'm just a girl working at a shitty bar with dead parents and too much student loan debt. And now I can't even go home because whoever's following me was in my house. She looks up from the coin, her eyes shining when they meet mine, but... She blinks the tears away before they can fall. But along with all that, apparently, I'm the last, whatever that means. Time freezes around us. Not really, of course. The bartender still pours drinks, twisting fruit into elaborate garnishes and handing them off to the doe-eyed waitress who fantasizes about leaving her husband for him. Directly to my right, a couple is on a first date, all giggles and furtive glances at each other. Across the bar, the lovely escort in the yellow dress is inches from throwing a drink in Mr. Entitlement's face. But all of it fades into silence around me as I realize just why the Archangels want this girl, and just what they will go through to obliterate her. Chapter 8 Grace devil is in my house. The fucking devil is in my house. For all the bizarre, terrifying turns my life had taken in the last 24 hours, 
it's safe to say that the absolute last way I expected to end my day was with Lucifer sitting at my kitchen table, watching me with a look that can only be described as apprehension. The instant the words, I'm the last, leave my mouth, Lucifer's entire demeanor changes. Gone is the casually inquisitive and slightly lecherous gaze. He goes still next to me, tension coiling in his muscles as his eyes dart around the room. We should get out of here. False levity colors his low voice, and his lips pull in a tight smile that's dangerously close to a grimace. If my words manage to make the devil this nervous, I'm guessing that I'm pretty well screwed. Once we exit the cool interior of the bar, Lucifer wastes no time in flagging down a cab, scrutinizing the driver for an instant before tugging me into the battered yellow car. Don't you have wings? I ask, only half-joking. One side of Lucifer's mouth quirks into a smile that doesn't quite reach his eyes. I never bring out the wings on a first date. You have to leave some mystery. I rattle off my address to the driver and lean back onto the worn leather seat, trying to reconcile the fact that this seemingly normal, if devastatingly sexy man next to me is the actual devil. The cabbie drives with the same level of reckless abandon everyone in the city adopts after a few months. Lucifer stares out the window through the drive, seeming to scan the face of everyone we pass while darting quick glances back at me, as though he expects something to reach through the cab window and snatch me. We pull to the curb in front of my house. Before I touch the door handle, Lucifer is out and opening it for me and ushering me up the steps. He calls over his shoulder at the cabbie. Consider this penance for overcharging that poor couple from Nebraska last night. Gabriel is sunning himself at the top of the steps. Lucifer pauses, cocking his head as the cat fixes him with a bored gaze before standing up and twining himself through my legs. I'm glad you don't have a dog, Lucifer says, bending down to scratch the top of Gabriel's head. Dogs don't care for my kind much. Cats, though, their no-fucks philosophy meshes quite well with my own. My hands are steady as I unlock my front door. Lucifer stands at my back, so close that I can feel his body heat and smell the scent of his skin, smoke and some unnamed spice. I ease open my door and Gabriel runs inside, his paws nearly silent on the wood floors. Lucifer follows at my heels, pushing the door closed behind us and clicking the lock and deadbolt. I open my mouth to make a joke about how we could rig up a barricade if he really wants to, but the words die in my throat at the look on his face. Whatever is after me, it's bad. Desperate for even the barest semblance of normalcy, I walk into the kitchen where Gabriel sits expectantly by his empty bowl, gazing at me with the level of disdain only a hungry cat can muster. Lucifer sits down on one of my kitchen chairs, watching without comment as I rummage through my cabinets in search of a can of cat food. I've just opened the can, wrinkling my nose at the pungent smell, 
when Lucifer breaks the silence. You're the last. I know exactly what that means. I unceremoniously dump the food into Gabriel's bowl and sink down into the chair opposite Lucifer, forcing myself to abandon any more ploys to delay his revelation. What you are is not just a girl working at a shitty bar with dead parents and too much student loan debt. He repeats my own words back to me, his dark eyes boring into mine with a look of complete certainty. He doesn't need to read my soul to know the truth. What you are is God's great, great, great ad infinitum granddaughter. I always considered myself an articulate person. You don't survive graduate-level journalism classes without a decent grasp of the English language. But all that schooling and every witty comeback I've ever prided myself on melts away, and all I can think to say is a deeply eloquent, what? You know the stories. Virgin birth, son of God, blah, blah, blah. Lucifer leans back in his chair, a posture that appears relaxed to a casual observer, but I don't miss the way his eyes track the room, pausing at every window and doorway. What you don't know, what no one but the angels knows, is that Mary's virgin birth was twins. Everyone knows what happened to the boy, but the girl? She wasn't exactly born into a world known for fair treatment of women. Mary might have been innocent in some aspects, but she was far from stupid. She knew that whatever role her son might play in history wouldn't favor her daughter, so she gave the sort of sacrifice that only a mother could. She sent the girl away and never saw her again. The girl lived a life, married, had children, and eventually died. To an outsider, she was shockingly normal, but any angel, fallen or otherwise, could sense what she was. She bore two sons, but they don't matter. You couldn't trace lineage accurately through a male until the last few decades. Who they were and what they did is long since lost and forgotten. Then how, Lucifer continues as though I haven't said a word. She had a daughter, and you were of that bloodline. He falls silent, giving me time to absorb his words. It can't be true. I'm not some magical person with holy blood. I'm just Grace. This has to be some kind of mistake. It's not a mistake. Lucifer says, his voice shockingly gentle. He reaches across the kitchen table and presses his hand over my own, stroking the back of my hand as though soothing a skittish animal. I'm not wrong. You're not having a psychotic break. This isn't a dream or a joke. His voice grows harder as he returns to his story. He doesn't take his hand away. Nephilim were always considered an abomination. Mixing divine blood with human? God got a pass for that one time because... God, he says with a shrug. But any angels who stepped out of line and did the same? It didn't end so well for them or their offspring. But if the angels could sense her from the beginning, why did they let her survive? I counter, 
still trying to wrap my head around this insane theological discussion I'm having at my kitchen table with Lucifer. Lucifer shakes his head. Things were different back then. My absentee father was much more present, and the angels were loath to step out of line. They didn't dare touch her. As time passed, the divinity in that bloodline faded to nothingness in her sons, but it stayed in her daughter and her daughter's daughter, and so on. But when God fell silent, the archangels took it upon themselves to interpret the rules. I feel the cold creeping into my body, and every part of me wants to scream for him to stop talking, to not ask the words I know are coming next. How did your parents die? I shake my head. No, I beg, not caring how broken my voice sounds. It was a car accident. It was just a random, terrible thing that happened. I stare at Lucifer's hand on mine, barely seeing it, and try to ignore the hot tears that slip down my cheeks. Someone killed them. Yes. Flat. Final. Someone had murdered my family, and all he can say is, yes. Grace, look at me. Slowly I lift my head, expecting to see pity, but instead Lucifer's features twist into a look of pure rage. His face softens after a moment, the hate draining from his features as quickly as it appeared. Your father was collateral damage. Just something in the way. He was after your mother and you. He wanted to wipe the last traces of your tainted blood from the world. And now he's back to finish the job. I pull my hand out from under Lucifer's and swipe at my eyes, wiping away the tears and pushing down that small, sad part of me that just wants to curl into a ball and sob. When I speak again, I barely recognize my own voice. Who killed them? The smile that crosses Lucifer's lips has nothing to do with any crumb of happiness. The same person I'm looking for. The Archangel Michael. Lucifer leans forward, sitting in the same chair my mother once did, and resting his arms on the table my father built with his own hands. I feel the last bit of fear drain from me, replaced by something harder. Little Gracie who jumps at shadows is gone. I'm going to kill him, Lucifer says, searching my face for any signs of hesitation and finding none. Want to help? And I want to make sure to give a shout out to our patrons and supporters, beginning with Dogen Foster, C. Stephen Manley, Colleen Jackson, Audiobooks After Dark, the podcast of Paul Stokes, and Zachary McElroy. Thank you all so much. I, I, I appreciate your support so much. Uh, this wouldn't be possible without you. Um, and if you'd like to uh, support this podcast and get your name mentioned at the end of an episode, as well as a bunch of other cool uh, supporter-only stuff, head on over to patreon.com forward slash sorceress and sign up to support us at the wisecracking wizard level or higher. We'd greatly appreciate it. And that's it for this time. Thanks for dropping by. We really hope you enjoyed it and will come back and see us again. 
You can find Sorceress on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, Sorceress. That's S-O-R-C-E-R-O dot U-S. And you can find me at jamesnarrates.com, where you'll find a list of audiobooks, demos, and all the usual stuff. If you're enjoying Sorceress, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you're really enjoying it, it'd be mighty kind of you to drop a buck or two in the kitty. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com forward slash sorceress, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash jamesnarrates. Any support, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated, and it'll help us keep on keeping on. So until next time, when things go bump in the night, remember to bump back.